Welcome back to The Doctor Is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. I'm Dana Svedan, Dr. Saba's producer. This episode is part of our What Plants Crave series, where Dr. Saba speaks with growers, researchers, and other experts in controlled environment agriculture to get their insights about the direction of the industry and, of course, what exactly it is that plants crave. This week, we're speaking with Nick Denny. Nick is the Director of Cultivation for Holistic Industries, a multi-state cannabis operator based in Washington, D.C. Nick began his career growing leafy greens, fruits, and vegetables in South Florida, where he managed a hydroponic greenhouse and started a small farm that sold specialty produce to the area's top chefs. Thanks for listening. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Nadia Saba, president of Dr. Greenhouse and host of The Doctor Is In. Um, Welcome to our special series, What Plants Crave. Today's guest is Nick Denny, Director of Cultivation at Holistic Industries, a multi-state cannabis cultivation operation here in the U.S. Hi, Nick. It's so great to have you here. Hey, Nadia. Thanks for having me. Really excited for this. I am too. I'm really excited to learn more about you, about your plants, um, how you got into this crazy industry and horticulture. I think it's going to be a really fun conversation. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about yourself in holistic. What, how many states is holistic industries in right now? So currently we have six operational cultivation facilities. The first one ever was in Washington, D.C., And then we expanded to Maryland, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, and then just this past year opened facilities in just outside of Detroit in Michigan, um, and then in Kansas City, Missouri. And then we, in a few months, we'll open our facility in West Virginia. And not not too long after that, uh, we'll be opening a facility in New Jersey. That's a lot of different states and jurisdictions. I mean, just to jump into it for a moment, I mean, what are the the different requirements and regulations in these states? How do you navigate that? Yeah, that's definitely a challenge. Every state's a little bit to a lot different. You know, you see some states adopting or basically copying and pasting regulations from the other. Um, you know, West Virginia and Pennsylvania is a good example. If you look at those regulations, they're, they're almost identical. Um, but then you have a state like Massachusetts that's pretty strict uh, when it comes to microbial thresholds and flower, what you can apply on your plants as far as pesticides. Um, They only allow 25B exempt products. So while in other states we can use, you know, organic listed inputs, you know, in in Massachusetts, we're we're extremely limited. So that alone causes quite a bit of uh, variation between how we operate. But, you know, for the most part, the substrate we use, the fertilizers we use, the, the climate set points we're trying to achieve, our irrigation strategies are all uh, relatively consistent. It just comes down to, I think, the thresholds in the flower for testing and, and what we can apply in the plants that really are the, the most different. That's interesting. Now, some of those states are medicinal and some are mm-hmm. adult use, right? Right. Does right. that affect how, you, how you're cultivating? Maybe the end product a little bit, different cultivars. I mean, I think every every state market is definitely different and unique at the moment, you know, where Michigan is a more mature market and those those consumers are, I think, a lot pickier than some states on the East Coast. They've just been exposed to cannabis for a longer period of time, especially higher quality cannabis. So they demand higher quality. 
than That's what I what I see in other states. That doesn't mean we're trying to produce lower quality in other states. But you know what's what's good about us operating across these different states is we'll take a state like Pennsylvania or Massachusetts that has really strict microbial thresholds, and we know that if we if we place sanitation protocols in those states that allow us to fall under those thresholds, it will work in any state. So you know we'll take the most strict biosecurity and sanitation protocols in those states and apply them to a state like let's say Maryland or Michigan that has higher thresholds for microbial and you know operate in that manner so you're good to um, go yeah that's yeah. awesome yeah nice so um let's step back a little bit tell me about you um and your path to holistic um have you always um had a passion for cannabis did you start with another horticultural crop yeah so it's, it's a bit of a long story how i got into growing plants for a living i'll, I'll try to keep it somewhat short here so it really started for me in my senior year in high school when I had already set up to go um, start at Florida State the, next, the following year. I was signed up as a political science major and I was working at a law firm thinking I was going to become a lawyer. But, you know, I wasn't particularly enjoying my work at the law firm and I was getting pretty bored. And I just remember this one morning where we, we had a late planned start at school. So my friend, one of my best friends, Jamel, him and I went to the beach to smoke a joint before school. And I remember halfway through the joint, just thinking about all this and how I didn't like what I was doing and how I didn't want this to be my life. And I remember halfway through the joint, just looking at him and saying, I'm quitting today. I'm quitting a law firm. I'm not doing this. And so fast forward, to sophomore year in college, about two years later, Jamel moved in with me at my house in Tallahassee and he had a green thumb. So when spring came along, he started planting stuff. And I, I specifically remember him, you know, we were finding anything we could to plant in. So any, any type of container. And he had this gallon milk jug that he had cut in half and filled with soil and planted a bunch of arugula seeds in there. And once they got to, you know, an inch or so tall, he, he gave me a, he pinched one off and gave it to me and said, try it. And when I tasted, I just remember being blown away with the flavor. Um, and I had never been exposed to that in my life. And so I didn't know that, you know, just produce could taste that way. And little did I know, you know, later on, that's what we would refer to as microgreens and microgreens are known yes. as, you know, having that more intense flavor, but and arugula That's, already has a really intense flavor. So microgreen yeah. version yeah. of arugula must have been just like mind blowing. Mm, yeah, really peppery. But yeah, that just blew my mind. And it was a pretty confusing time for me in my life because I knew since that, that day, senior year, that I wasn't going to do something unless I really enjoyed doing it. And when I got into plants, I, I enjoyed it. And so we started planting a garden in the backyard and, you know, Jamel and my other friend, Evan, we were just planting whatever we could, sunflowers, tomatoes, and I loved seeing them germinate and kind of grow up and eventually produce fruit. And um, we also had this huge mulberry tree in the backyard and we would lay out blankets and towels underneath it and go up and climb the tree and shake the branches or use ropes and shake the branches and all the fruit would come down and we'd harvest it. And so that, that was, that spring was kind of my first exposure to growing my own food and 
I just thoroughly enjoyed all of it, but I never really saw it as a career. I just saw it as a hobby to take my mind off of this, this angst I had of what am I going to do with my life? And the plants were saying, hello, we're right here. (laughs) Yeah. It just, it put me in a different space um, that I really liked. And, you know, to that point, the only thing that could do that for me was playing sports. So about a year later, uh, I kept researching different farming methods because before then I, I didn't see it as a career because I always saw it as for you know older guys with straw hats and lots of land and didn't really see it as a, a viable career. But as I start, I kept researching and I came across aquaponics and I was so fascinated with that, um, you know, using fit, feeding fish and using their waste to grow plants. And, you know, it all seemed just so, so fascinating. So I remember calling my mom and telling her what I wanted to do. And she's like, oh, I think I know someone that is into that stuff and has a business that's growing fish and growing plants and bugs. And okay. And so she put me in contact with him. um, And that ended up being my boss for the first company I worked for out of undergrad. They were a startup that was, um, they, they called it integrated agriculture. So they started the business off producing black soldier fly larvae as an alternative protein source for fish meal. Really? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Interesting. Yeah. So fish meal is a, a the, the typical protein source in aquaculture feeds, which are high protein. And it's not a very sustainable practice because basically you're going to catch fish in the ocean to feed fish on land. Are um, you serious? Yes. Yeah. Is that cannibalism, by the way? or if it's a different fish species does that not count (laughs) yeah yeah different species different species but you know their idea was to use black soldier fly larvae to I guess uh replace that protein source and so we were collecting several metric tons of produce waste from large farms and supermarkets in the area uh, and using that as a feedstock for the uh, black soldier fly production we were breeding them rearing them in house and then you know we would you know, quote unquote, harvest the larvae, and they would go through a press and a drying process. And the final product was a, a high protein meal. So you talked to Lydia about this, right? I did a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. I know two people now, black soldier fly larvae. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. They're, they're really fascinating animals. Um, so that's how it started. And that's kind of where I started with the company the first couple of months. But during that time, they were building a greenhouse on the property. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to be able to manage that from, you know, the time I started, you know, a couple months in all the way to when I left the company about five years later. And, you know, we also had a small aquaculture system where I was running a sort of a decoupled aquaponics system. So it wasn't all on the same loop. They were separated and I was growing leafy greens and herbs indoors. Um, and then in the greenhouse, I had, you know, one side was vine crops, you know, just what I was growing was dependent on the time of the year. Um, and the other side was more leafy greens, herbs, lettuces. We had some, some shade houses where I was growing other crops, a lot of peppers. Um, and then we had about a quarter, half acre of uh, soilless blackberries. So um, I was growing a lot of different species and it was, it was all hydroponic, um, which at that time was, was pretty new to me. So I, I kind of started from the ground up and, 
Um, my first heads of lettuce were completely white, just no, no green at all, because I didn't have an un- a good understanding of crop nutrition. Okay. So as I, I was finding papers from University of Florida, Cornell, about you know, hydroponic nutrient formulation, and I just went one element at a time, you know, adding Sorry. nitrogen and calcium and then phosphorus, potassium, and, until you know, I had some pretty healthy looking plants. So that's, that's kind of how I got my jumpstart or how I got interested in plants from the beginning. That's um, so cool. A friend. Is, is Jamal yeah. still a friend of yours? Yes. Yeah. Was just visiting me in DC area awesome. uh, a couple of weeks ago and he did not take a career in plants. So it was, <laughs> it's pretty funny that, that him and, and my buddy Evan um, kind of saw me in my first exposure to it. And now they see I've, I've just gone crazy with it. So that's so amazing. So, I mean, you started in Florida, which has a very robust greenhouse industry and yeah. agricultural industry, uh, some mm-hmm. of the plants that you mentioned. Was there a particular season that was impossible to grow some of these plants or were you mm-hmm. able to grow year round because it's, you know, sunny so much there or just with the humidity take you out at some point? Yeah, great question. The majority of farmers down there shut down during the summer. I'd say, you know, once they get into late May, early June, most of them start to shut down and they don't start planting again until about late September, you know, maybe early October, depending on the species. But, you know, the company I work for wanted to grow 12 months a year. So we had to figure out ways to do that. And there, yeah, there are some species that it was, I wouldn't say it's impossible to grow, but it's not feasible economically to grow, you know, why? just because you, you don't produce as much or because you lose too much yeah. or because you need to input so much more to maybe dehumidify or something. I would, I would say mostly yield and quality. Okay. Um, you know, like tomatoes, I could get fruit in August, but it wasn't high quality fruit. It wasn't good yields. So and I then you're competing to- with us from, from California oh, yeah. and yeah, uh, importing <laughs> or exporting, I guess, our tomatoes to Florida. So why bother? <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. It just, it just wasn't economically feasible. So what I would do is I would grow tomatoes for seven to nine months out of the year. And then I would switch. I, I tried to eggplant a few times, but what I really liked was the uh, beta alpha cucumbers those mini cukes. Yes. I love um, mini cukes. Yeah. Cause I could get, I could get my first harvest in about 30 to 40 days. Okay. Uh, since you mentioned cucumbers, mm-hmm. have you ever eaten a cucumber blossom? Yes. Oh yeah. my God. They're so delicious. Talk about yeah. microgreens. Like the oh, cucumber yeah. blossom is like the microgreen of cucumber. Yeah. It's- we would sell those at, uh, I had a small farm, um, during those, those years in Florida, uh, where, we were selling microgreens, edible flowers, and other specialty crops to um, chefs in the South Florida area. Very cool. And that was sort of our specialty was microgreens, edible flowers. So any flower that we could pick and sell, you know, we were doing it. Very cool. So if we fast forward, how did you get to cannabis? So I, I always wanted to grow it, you know, as a job or even as a hobby. I just never had a great opportunity to do so. But, you know, I started at a pretty early age as a consumer of the plant, um, you know, back in high school, early high school. And it was a big part of my life. And I would see other people growing it. And it was always fascinating to me. 
But, you know, when I started my career with vegetables, it's, it wasn't even legal in Colorado yet. So I didn't really see it as a, a viable option for me. And I also didn't really see myself leaving Florida either. So as Florida started to legalize or at least medical, I started to think about it more. And, but it was hard for me to envision myself taking another job while staying in Florida and running my farm. But during all this, I had gotten married. And, and my wife was not really finding job, a job in South Florida that she enjoyed. Um, you know, she's, she's a scientist. She has a background in biology and mycology. And that, there's just not a lot of jobs like that in Florida. It's a lot of hospitals and hospitality. So I was lucky enough to have a job in, in that field down there. Hospitals Even, and hospitality. I'm sorry. I just had to pause yeah. on that for a moment. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the industry down there. And agriculture is obviously huge, but you know, controlled environment. You know, the jobs just aren't abundant. They're there. They're just it's it's hard to get to break through. So we started looking at different areas of, of the country to move to where it, it would work for both of us. And she had some family in the D.C. area, and there's also a tons of jobs up here, especially with. The work she was trying to do, which is more environmental nonprofit. So we eventually, you know, we looked deep into the area and decided it was definitely the best move for us. And I was like, well, this is a perfect opportunity for me to do what I really want to do, which is grow, grow some weed. So I started looking in, into the Maryland, D.C., Virginia uh, to see who could offer employment. And Maryland had just launched their medical program. And these, these producers were just get, starting to get off the ground. Um, what year was this? We moved first week or second week of 2018. So they, wow. okay. Holistic had their first plants in Maryland, I think about four months before that. And they were one of the first to harvest in Maryland. So that, mu that must've been one of the first facilities to launch. So, you know, I, I found Holistic and I really liked the opportunity that, that seemed to be there, um, not only for me to get to do what I want, but they were expanding to other states, um, while the other companies I talked to were just more focused on just Maryland. And so I saw a lot of opportunity there to apply my skills and have a higher ceiling to grow and, and learn more, just be exposed to more. So I started with them as an assistant cultivation manager in January, 2018, and about a year, year and a half later, became the cultivation manager. And then about a year, year and a half after that, uh, moved up to more of a regional role. And then, you know, last year began as the director of cultivation. That is a very uh, quick upward climb. Good for you. <laughs> yeah. Well, Holistic's grown somehow faster than, than I have. You know, when I started there, we only had plants in Maryland and D.C. And now we're in six states going on seven and eight. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a great fit. So are you guys only growing indoors or do you also have greenhouses? Yeah, currently we're only indoors. You know, while I definitely want to get back into a greenhouse, you know, I, I really enjoy the, the control and uh, the consistency that I see indoors. Mm -hmm. um, consistency in the end product or just consistency like in terms of controllability? Or maybe they're the same. Yeah, I was going to say it's, it's both. And, you know, there's, there's always ups and downs. But compared to what I was used to in the greenhouse, um, or growing outside or under shade cloth. It's, it's a whole new world. Um, you know, I had never been exposed to HVAC systems for, you know, applications like this. So that, that was a new thing for me. 
uh, that I've learned a lot about in the last few years. But yeah, we're completely indoors right now and hopefully back in the greenhouse one day. Yeah. What is the biggest benefit? I mean, you are in six states, uh, mostly in, you know, the mid-Atlantic, northeast area. Are the benefits the same to be indoors in in all of those locations? If you had your choice, would one of those states be a greenhouse because it would have some better conditions maybe to be in a greenhouse? I actually think some of the western states are much better for greenhouses than the East Coast. Um, it's a little drier it, here. It's a lot drier. And so you can use evaporative cooling to, to cool the greenhouse while East, when you need the cooling, it's also the most humid time of the year. So it, you know, I'm not saying it can't be done. It obviously can. It's just, I think it takes much larger investments, you know, larger operating costs compared to what you would set up in Arizona or Utah or parts of California. What, yeah. what has been one of your biggest learning curves going from a greenhouse uh, type of environment? I realize it's also a different crop. Um, right. And I want to ask about that too. But like if, if you had grown cannabis, say in a greenhouse and moved indoors, what, mm. where would the learning curve be? What, what is, yeah, you mentioned HVAC. Is there anything yeah. else? I would say all the mechanical stuff that controls our climate and how they, you know, you change one variable and they're all impacted. That's been the biggest adjustment for me. You can't just say, hey, I'm not hitting my target temperature. I'm, I'm too high. We need to add more cooling. Well, that's going to add more dehumidification. And then do you need to adjust airflow? Do you need to adjust CO2? There's, there's so many variables that need to be kind of in sync. And you know, part of the challenge is even when you dial in a facility, because there's always that period of time where you have a new facility or a new space where you're learning the systems and how it, they, they interact with your space and your plants and your style of growing. But one of our challenges has been, we're constantly finding ways to grow the plants better and have better performance. And what comes along with that is more transpiration, more CO2 consumption, more fertilizer consumption. So we'll, we ran into something at a facility where they were seeing sort of unprecedented growth from what they were used to. And we started noticing the CO2 company was showing up almost daily to top off our tank. And that was totally you know, not normal. And what was happening was the increased growth rates, the CO2 valve was pretty much open all the time, at least while the lights were on. So the draw from the tank was really fast. So the bottom, it started freezing from the bottom up because if you're drawing that liquid CO2 out too quickly, that bot- the tank will just start to freeze. Oh so my God. <laughs> at, as the tank kept freezing, there was less capacity in the tank to fill, you know, that the company would come fill up. That's why they were having to come back. And so- So it wasn't we, that you had like 10,000 parts per million in the room. It, no, was, no, just, no, it no. was the tank itself couldn't hold on to the CO2. Right. Interesting. Right. Yeah. So we traced that back. We identified that. We made some adjustments to the tank and, and figured it out. It was fine. But things like that, where even when you spend all that time dialing in a system, by then you're figuring out better ways to grow the plant and you're just going to encounter another challenge. So being ready for that and understanding all the variables and how they impact each other, that was the biggest learning curve for me. Hmm. So... Okay, so now if we talk about the plant itself as opposed to the facility type, 
what was the biggest learning curve going from vegetables to cannabis? Um, did you find a lot in common, um, especially like maybe between tomatoes and cannabis, or are they all really very different? Yeah, I know that's a common example that people use, you know, they're tomatoes or cannabis, just like tomatoes. And yeah, there is a lot that's similar, but one of the differences I think a lot of people overlook is at least the tomatoes that I was growing in a greenhouse were indeterminate varieties, meaning they have vegetative and flowering happening at the same time for pretty much the entire life cycle outside yeah, of that, that, that first you know, month or two. So you're trying to constantly balance vegetative and generative growth based on how your plant is performing. And that's just a constant steering battle. With cannabis, it's, I think, technically a determinate plant. So we have more distinct phases of growth that change throughout the life cycle. So that, that was a little bit different. I would say the nutritional requirements are pretty similar. You know, you could use a tomato formula on cannabis and, and do pretty well. There's definitely a few differences and nuances that, you know, se separate the two. But, you know, they both can take a lot of light. They both can take a lot of fertilizer. Or when you provide more light, they require more fertilizer. Um, <laughs> so yeah, there, there's a lot of, uh, of similarities, but you know, post-harvest is completely different. There's yeah. with tomatoes, you're, you're picking them fresh and washing them off and selling them with, with cannabis, the post-harvest process, while it's, you know, the last 10, 15% of the plant's life, it's, you know, arguably just as important as growing the plant, how you grow the plant and its impact on quality and, you know, how that, that patient or customer receives that product. So that's completely different. And also cannabis being a, a dioecious plant. That was, that was new to me. So, you know, tomatoes, we, if we're not getting pollination, we have problems. If we have pollination in cannabis, we have big problems. That is a really good distinction to make. Yeah. What, do, so what does dioecious mean? They have separate male and female plants. So, you know, a tomato has separate male and female parts on the same flower. Mm -hmm. So we would have certain varieties of tomatoes that we'd have to manually pollinate and have either like an electric toothbrush or they'd make these special pollinating wands that we would use and that worked well. Or uh, you could release you could release bees that don't sting you. Right. You, yep. You can get those. I mean, I just use the pollinating wand or you could get varieties that are self-germ or self-pollinating, um, like greenhouse varieties. That you How don't does that use. work? I think just breeding. I never asked. Interesting. <laughs> or you just have really strong fans that will yeah. fall into the flower. Fans, fans would work. Yeah, fans would work. Um, but I, I always saw increased uh, fruit set if I manually pollinated. So, I mean, those are really interesting comparisons. If you looked at like the veg stage of mm -hmm. a cannabis plant, would you think that that was more similar to, I don't know, another vegetative crop? I, I'll just call it lettuce. I mean, do they like sort of similar conditions or are you really raising a cannabis plant different at that vegetative stage than you would a vegetative plant? Yeah, I think so. I think lettuce, the nutritional requirements are a lot lower. You know, I was also growing that lettuce in deep water culture. So um, that's totally different than what I'm doing now in substrate. You know, I was also growing tomatoes, pepper, all the vine crops were grown in substrate, but yeah, lettuce, I would say is, is definitely way different because you never have that end goal of having a fruit or flower. 
So um, you could let it flower. I guess. Yeah, I guess you could. Yeah. No, I think most people don't want flowering lettuce plants though. No, they get way too bitter, Um, which was the issue we ran into trying to grow lettuce in, you know, August in South Florida was you, you get really, the plants are quick to bolt, meaning they're going to try to seed. Um, and so Why? Because it, it's so hot? Yeah, the heat. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so as soon as the plant starts bolting, the leaves get really bitter and gross. So you don't want that to happen. So in order for me to grow lettuce for 12 months a year, we were chilling the water, which, you know, questionable if that's really economically viable at a large scale or even worth it. I would tighten my densities and grow more loose leaf varieties that didn't really depend on having a, a good structure to them, like a butterhead would. Um, and then in the winter, I would space them out more and grow more, more head types like butterhead um, because those were honestly just a lot more desirable by the market than, than loose leaf, which if you think about cannabis, it's kind of the opposite. If you're if you're work if you're working in a greenhouse and you're trying to grow cannabis and it's a hotter time of the year, you would spread your plants out more to give you know give them more light, more airflow. So totally opposite. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. interesting. I also really like. Yeah, I find that vegetable growers are kind of flexible, at least in a greenhouse, um, mm-hmm. in terms of what varietals they are producing based on season realizing that there are benefits, like you mentioned, to have a loose leaf versus a tighter head uh, at different times of the year uh, for the reasons you just described. And so a greenhouse, a vegetable greenhouse may cycle through many different cultivars of this, you know, of the same plant more or less, um, but are, are trying to fit that plant to meet the, the seasonal effects where you know, cannabis, and maybe if you're set up as a tomato greenhouse grower, also, you are always trying to grow the same plant year round. If you were going to grow cannabis in a greenhouse, would you be trying to grow the same exact strains and cultivars that you're growing indoors right now? Or would you be trying to find other cultivars that would work well in a greenhouse type of environment? Yeah, that's another great question. I guess I don't, with our current genetic library, I don't know because I've never tried to grow them outside. I think there's certain varieties that I would start with just off like best guess, but more so if, you know, especially if we're trying to grow 12 months a year, I would pick plants with different growth habits for different times of the year. Um, like so would, what does that mean? Maybe in the warmer months, if, especially if we're battling humidity, I would pick plants that tend to have more distance in their inner nodes that, you know, allow more airflow, you know, air penetration, light penetration uh, would reduce the risk of mold. And then maybe I save the other more compact plants with tighter internode spacing for the winter. So that again, sounds like your lettuce varietals in some ways. Yeah. Yeah. Almost like in the opposite way, like I said, but yeah, but same strategy, same, same forethought going into uh, plant structure um, being related to the conditions you can create or yeah. have to live with. Yeah. And, and a lot of that, I've been inspired by the book Plant Empowerment. So if anyone listening to this has not read that and you're a grower, I highly recommend you reading that. Um, it's a good one. Yeah. I think it's it's probably going to be you know, what most 
control environment ag growers refer to, you know, first over the next, you know, 10, 20 years. But yeah, they they are really big on, you know, balancing the plant. So if you're dealing with a certain climate that you cannot manipulate and control like you can with an indoor space, you can adjust your other variables like plant spacing or the amount of light that you're getting to the plant or the amount of irrigation or how you're irrigating your strategies to best balance the plant. And yeah, plant spacing is a a huge part of that. So you brought up a term uh, a minute ago, uh, you said steering the plant. Mm -hmm. What what exactly does that mean? How do you steer a plant? um, and, And how is that different than I don't know, just letting the plant do its own thing and grow how it wants to grow. Yeah. So I think what what you're talking about is crop steering. And I think that term now that it's come to the cannabis industry has been, it's not being accurately represented all, you know, wherever I see it because crop steering has been around for a little bit um, for other crops like tomatoes. Yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Like Um, you mentioned with tomatoes. Yeah. There might be a vegetative uh, generative kind of simultaneous yep. growth, but there's something that you, you change in the environment to get it to then flower or, and, and to fruit when you want it to. Right. Yes. Yes. So I think, you know, no matter what, even if growers know it or not, you are steering your plant one way or another, but who, who really turned me on to crop steering was a, a guy named Ramsey Nubani who worked with Arroya, a company that provides a, a platform for, you know, soil sensing technology and tracking that data and collecting the, you know, plant growth data and, you know, climate, root zone sensing, um, light. And, you know, he, he really turned me on to it and uh, explained to me some of you know, the techniques and, and benefits of using those techniques. And, and what it comes down to is it's a controlled and targeted stress. And that doesn't mean that, you know, just because you see some growers having success with crop steering that you should just go out and start stressing your plants out. Where I think it really needs to start is with, you need to start with a balanced plant. You need to start with a healthy balanced plant that can deal with some stress. And I think it's a lot like humans where if we just incubated ourselves in our houses our entire lives, and then we go out into the real world, you know, you're going to get sick more easily or, you know, you're not going to be as resilient, but, you know, exposing plants to controlled and targeted stress can really elicit the, you know, different responses, especially when it comes to the physiological or morphological traits. So first things first is we always start with a balanced plant. Just make sure we have a nice, healthy, balanced plant. You know, it's clean, free of pests, free of disease, you know, well, good nutrition. And then we'll use, you know, either vegetative or generative cues to bring out different responses. So first we have to classify what kind of plants these actually are, or what kind of cultivars, what are their habits. So that starts with our crop registration sheets, which you you can think of those as kind of recipe books for how to grow an individual cultivar. And so we classify, first classify those plants as either vegetative or generative type plants. So a vegetative plant would be something that really likes to stretch and has really strong branching habits, lateral branching, um, gets really tall if you let it versus a generative plant would be more compact, maybe tighter inner nodes. So typically when we go into flowering, you experience those first few weeks of stretch and then the plant stops stretching. Those first few weeks, in my opinion, are probably the most important of any stage of growth. 
but typically we are steering the plant the opposite way of its growth type. So if it's a vegetative plant and it really likes to stretch and branch, we'll steer that more generatively to control the stretch and not let it get too tall and tighten those internode spaces a little bit. You know, we've seen pretty amazing results. Or if we have a more generative plant that doesn't like to stretch, we can provide it with more vegetative cues and elongate those stems and get them taller because if we get them to a certain height, especially if we have that higher light intensity at the top of the canopy and we can penetrate that light intensity through the crop, that extra cubic footage of canopy is going to increase our yield pretty significantly. Are you doing this because you're growing multiple strains or cultivars in the same room? I mean, if you are growing one cultivar that only was more vegetative physiology or more generative physiology, would you manipulate it this way? Or and I think at the end of the day, we're just trying to bring out the best expression of that plant. So if we were growing one cultivar, we would just find the right cues that bring out the best expression of that plant. So yeah, we would be steering it, but we just wouldn't change it. That would be really easy <laughs> if we could just grow <laughs> one cultivar. Um, Why make it easy on ourselves? <laughs> no, no. I, I love growing the variety. I think that's probably the most exciting thing about the cannabis plant, other than all of its benefits and how it can help people is the amount of variety within the species. It is amazing. Um, you know, I grew the, like the most comparable plant for me as far as the range of smells and profiles that it has was mint. Like I was growing nine or 10 different types of mint. But when I came over to cannabis and I, I start a pack of seeds and I get 10 female plants that all look and smell differently from the, the same batch of seeds, you know, that's exciting to me. I think maybe a lot of breeding scientists might think that that's not a good thing, but I think it's one of the best things about this plant is that you can have so much variety and if, if I buy a pack of seeds and my friend buys a pack of seeds and we both start them and we can have totally unique plants that are special to us. It's um, kind of like apples. Mo I don't think a lot of people realize that when you have an apple and the seeds at the core, each of those seeds, if you planted all of those seeds, you would get a different apple tree because every seed holds a, a different bundle of, of genetics within it that it then expresses, which is why you see so many grafted apple trees. Um, okay. Because if you want to keep the same red delicious or gala or, you know, whatever apple type, you then clone it and mm. graft it to, you know, like a rootstock that is really healthy, has a really healthy rootstock. And then you graft the top of it with the actual apple variety that you cloned. Um, from another apple tree, because if you plant those seeds, you're going to get completely different apples, which is what they think about Johnny Appleseed, actually, is that when he went around and he planted all these apple trees and apple seeds or whatever, that a lot of them came up as, I'll just call them crab apples, really crappy tasting <laughs> apples. And then what did they do? They started making apple cider because the fruit was disgusting, but they couldn't waste all these apples. And so then they made apple cider and then all the men came home drunk. And then, um, <laughs> <laughs> and then the, yeah. And, uh, then prohibition happened. So, uh, I don't know if it's all connected, but it's, wow. I mean, but there's a lot of genetic variety is the bottom yep. line in that 
apple fruit. So don't go around planting the apple seeds from the apple that you had this morning for breakfast um, because you get <laughs> 10 different apples. Well, I think I'd like that. So maybe you would. Yeah. <laughs> one but, one tree you can eat and nine others that you make cider from. Oh uh, yeah, true that. But yeah, that's that's completely different than what I was used to with other crops. Like lettuce, I could start a thousand seeds and they're all exactly alike. Tomatoes, I would do, you know, say fifty to hundred at a time and they'd all come out fair uniform. And I depended on that because I was gonna grow them for seven to nine months a year and I needed them at the same height so I could train them and not have them running into each other. And yeah, totally different. So all of our propagation in cannabis is done from cuttings because we're taking off that, that we're copying those genetics basically and just continuing to grow them out. So yeah. definitely way different. So what are the environmental cues? Okay, you're growing these, let's just say that you had two, two types of plant. You had a generative looking plant and you had a vegetative looking plant. And you said you're going to change environmental cues to each of those plants in the same space. Mm. I mean, you know, a lot of times I think about steering in terms of like temperature differentials Mm. day and night or changes in lighting. I mean, you can't do that in the same space with those same plants. So, so what are you changing? What's the cue you change? Yeah. So you're right about temperature and humidity. Um, If they're in the same room, they're getting that same temperature and humidity. But with lighting, we can break zones up within the room. Okay. To to have, you know, dim, let's say one batch, batch one next to batch two, batch one can take more light. So we're going to push light intensity harder. And then the other batch, we can do it a little bit slower. CO2 also homogenous throughout the room, but irrigation, for us, irrigation zones match our dimming zone. So we can separate these batches by dimming, but also by their irrigation strategies. So if we're growing a generative plant in one batch next to a more vegetative cultivar in another batch, we can manipulate their, you know, their structure through our irrigation strategies. You can also use plant maintenance um, to do that as well. Topping, which I think it has its place you know, I personally prefer as much as I can to not top plants before sending them into flower, but that can be used. Selective defoliations at certain times of, of, of the cycle could be used as well. But mostly when I refer to plant maintenance, I'm mostly referring to topping, which would control the height of the plant. Yeah. Yeah. So that they're not growing through the lights, for example. Yeah. So if we have a really, a plant with a really fast growth rate, but you know, it's, it's much faster than everything else. And it would probably do really well untopped if it had seven days less of veg than all the other plants in our, you know, library. We can't adjust our entire process for one cultivar, but what we can do is we can top that cultivar and kind of slow down its stretch or its, you know, vertical growth and allow the others to kind of catch up. So why not just focus on that one cultivar? I mean, if it, if it could reduce your harvest cycle by an entire week, that seems like you could get more cycles per year. Why not just grow one type? No, because that, that would be done in veg and the, the clock to harvest doesn't start until we drop the amount of hours in a day. So ah, okay. um, they're all, you know, finishing closer to that nine week mark. We, we have a certain target height coming out of veg. And that height has a range depending on the type of plant that is, whether it's vegetative or generative. 
So vegetative plants are going to be on the lower end. Generative plants are going to be on the higher end. Mm -hmm. And then we have a, a target finishing height in flower. So we're, we're trying to get, you know, a, a really short squat plant and a really stretchy plant to basically finish at the same height. And so we can use those irrigation cues or plant maintenance to arrive at that same spot. I mean, with the irrigation, I, I'm thinking about what variables you would manipulate. There's obviously mm -hmm. nutrients and the nutrient mix or nutrient recipe, maybe the frequency of, yep. of water or the volume of water or the water temperature, though maybe for growing in, in blocks or in bags, that doesn't make mm -hmm. as big of a difference. I mean, not that I want you to give away any secret sauce, but are, are all of those or some of those part of that irrigation queuing? Yeah, definitely. And, and I don't mind sharing because this is all, if, if you look for it on the internet, it's there. You know, we're, we're not doing it. Anything we're doing with crop steering is not groundbreaking. It's, it's, it's out there. Yeah, you mentioned a few good ones. The frequency of irrigation is a big one. The volume of each irrigation pulse is another one. And usually those two go hand in hand. So like if, if it's a higher volume, would it be less frequent? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Because at the end of the day, let's say that plant is drinking, you know, a couple liters of water a day. Um, you can either get there through fewer, larger irrigation shots or several smaller irrigation shots. Um, but at the end of the day, you still want to end up, you know, between 10 to 20% runoff on average. So it's just a matter of how, you know, you're getting it to the plant. But, you know, if you send six, uh, 2% shots versus two, 6% shots, the plant is going to receive that cue very differently, especially, you know, how much time you place between those irrigation pulses. So every irrigation pulse is a vegetative cue. So if you want to steer the plant more generatively, you would increase the shot size so you don't have to water it as frequently through the day, but still get it all the water that it needs. And you know, typically in a generative style steering, you would allow that substrate to dry down longer. So you have a much longer period between your final irrigation and your first irrigation the following day. Because the plant thinks that uh, the, is it the cue that you're giving it that actually is really dry back that the soil is getting dry and therefore yeah. it must be the end of the season. And so I need to reproduce. I think that's the theory. You know, I, I don't know how much of this has actually been studied and truly understood, but the anecdotal evidence is enough for me to say, Hey, this is working. We're going to do it. But yes, you're, I think you're, you're on the right track there where if you're sending it more irrigation cues, you have fresh solution passing over those roots more frequently. So the plant is not thinking, it's, the plant is probably thinking, hey, I'm going to have enough water. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to push out this vegetative growth. Or if it's getting it less frequently, it's going to say, my life's going to come to an end. I need to push out flower. I need to reproduce. So that's typically the response you'll get if you steer a plant more generally is, you know, more flower sites typically less stretch. But yeah, gen a general lower water content in the substrate is going to be more generative and higher water content in the substrate is going to be more vegetative. So there's that, you know, ir or climate is mostly based off of BPD and light intensity. So 
you know, we, we just try to push light intensity as high as we can in the, especially in veg and early flower, you know, through, through middle flower, because the more photons we can get to that plant, the more biomass we can accumulate. So that's pretty simple. But VPD, typically a higher VPD is going to be more generative um, and a lower VPD is going to be more vegetative. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, this is so, so interesting. And I'm so glad that you're sharing all this knowledge with our audience, because I do want uh, growers to understand this idea of, of steering the plant and, and how many different variables can be involved in that, that it's not just, you know, I, of course, I love to talk about temperature and humidity and having a big diff, right? Having a high temperature and then a low temperature can, um, can create a more generative plant. Um, but I'm glad that you're talking about these other variables that I'm not as familiar with as, as a, um, as a strategy to trick your plant into knowing or thinking it's getting stressed out and it's going to die. Yeah. Yeah. And they're all, a little bit different or some are a lot different and that's what the crop registration sheets are for is you know if you are growing cultivar a and you're like man i killed it i'm going to replicate this on everything i grow well if that cultivar a was a very vegetative plant you know you are probably going to lose out on yield and, and performance on a uh, a very generative plant you so know i've important. had i've had growers say oh you know um this plant is an indica, but it grows more like a sativa. What does mm-hmm. that mean? I mean, are they basically saying what you're saying? And, and is there a myth behind indica and sativa? Or is that like a real thing? Yeah, I don't necessarily subscribe to the whole indica sativa thing at this point. I, I think true sativas are not really being grown commercially right now. So we just, Why? we always, they take a really long time to, to finish. So yeah, like commercial varieties are typically finishing in eight to 10 weeks once you flip them in the flower. But, you know, some of these, not saying all, but I think a lot of the true sativa types are going to take you maybe 12 plus weeks. Um, I've seen stuff that needs 20 weeks. I mean, it's, so it's a lot less harvest per year. And it's unfortunate because those, there's a lot of special plants on that, on that side of the spectrum, but when you have half the amount of harvest per year, it's, that can be difficult. Yeah, that can be hard. Um, mm-hmm. Also, I just wonder, I mean, you mentioned all this genetic variety and are we even able to truly trace what the genetics are? I mean, are there genetic markers that say you're an indica or sativa that we would know the difference? I've seen it simplified as broad versus narrow leaf plants. Okay. Um, you take I, out a ruler, right? And you measure what's broad and narrow. <laughs> not quite. We are, we are using rulers to measure plant height, but not, okay, good. Not, <laughs> not, not leaf surface, but no, I trust the geneticists that are much smarter than me with that stuff to, to come up with the right answers. I'm just excited by a lot of the breeding that, that happens in cannabis. And, um, it's, it's a little much, it's, it's pretty easy to, throw some pollen on, on a female plant and collect seeds. But I love the variety and I love, you know, kind of exploring what we can do with that variety and unlocking the best traits of that plant. Um, we've seen, if we change our irrigation strategy for four days at the end of flower, we've seen a completely different and a beneficial response to a cultivar. 
So wow, that's four that's days. Really... That's all it takes for the plant to respond in a positive or negative way. I would imagine too. Yeah, we changed one thing at towards the end of the life cycle. And when I walked past that row and I saw those plants, I thought because it was harvest day at that facility and they looked done. I was like, wait, it's two o'clock right now. Why aren't these? Why, why, isn't, why aren't people in here harvesting? And then I realized they were actually set to be harvested the next week. So that little change had helped them ripen faster, which was an issue for us before that with that cultivar. It helped tighten the flower up a little bit before it was kind of foxtail-y and it just didn't look, you know, quote unquote done at, you know, at our harvest date. But that little change made a, that big of an impact. Did you make the change on purpose or was yes. it on accident? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say, as you see foxtailing at the end, it's not in a hundred percent of the time, but we've noticed at the end, if you're seeing more foxtailing, um, you can dial that back a little bit with more generative cues. And some cultivars are very susceptible to that foxtailing. So it doesn't work with everything, but this particular cultivar, that small change helped pretty dramatically. Wow. So foxtailing is more of a vegetative sort of a response. At least when you're talking about irrigation, I, I think so. You can also see it happen when um, you're, the plant is heat stressed at the top. So like if your plants are getting close to your lights, I've seen that be, be a pretty common occurrence, which, you know, if you steer your, your irrigation is not going to fix that. You'd have to adjust your lights, but definitely, you know, we've seen plants being steered too vegetatively towards the end. And we make that one small change and, you know, boom, the flowers are, there's still a little bit of foxtailing. It's still there. That's the genetic you know, predisposition, but we can make it a lot less severe if, if the plant responds well to the cue. Hmm. So you made me think of a question, which is, have you ever discovered something that works well from serendipity? Was there an accident or something? You're like, oh my God, like, that's amazing. I never would have thought to do that. Yes. But, you know, I had other people helping me connect the dots. So that's okay. (laughs) um, You know, we had, and I think a lot of growers probably experienced this at the end of their drip lines. If you have any biofilm issues, that's where... typically you'll lose pressure first. So those plants will start to dry out faster than the rest of the table. And so we were starting to notice that some tables that experience that, especially with more vegetative cultivars, um, they would, we would go to harvest them and they would be like a foot shorter than the rest of the table, but their, the flower diameter was close to probably twice of what the rest of the table was. Whoa. And we couldn't put it together, you know, until I met Ramsey and started talking to him about crop steering and he was educating me. And what my theory was, those plants were drying out pretty hard in the first couple of weeks of flower. We caught that and we switched the drip emitters out or flushed the lines and got them water again. And so if they made it all the way through those first few weeks and they were getting dried out really hard, and then all of a sudden we fix those drip emitters and we can start hitting them with water again. And sometimes overcompensating because the bags were already too dry, at least when we're getting them re-wetted. What we basically did was we steered them very generatively in those first few weeks while they're stretching, which limited the stretch probably too much because they were really stressed. But then we start, we fix the emitters and we start getting them more water. So we start steering them very vegetatively, which helps bulk the flower. And so 
we end up at the end with this much more compact plant with much wider flowers. Wow. So do you do that all the time now? <laughs> um, I mean, in general, generative plants, yes, which is my uh, personal preference. I'd rather pick a gen, or I'm sorry, a vegetative plant, um, okay. um, steer generatively in the first few weeks rather than steer vegetatively. Um, you know, every grower has their preference, but that's mine. I like to control kind of out of control plants. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you like to reel them in. <laughs> yep. Yep. Um, this idea of registration, I mean, it's, it's interesting because I imagine that that takes a bit of training for your growers, mm-hmm. um, especially if you are starting with any new genetics or any new breeds that you're not familiar with. Um, what kind of goes into that? Like, what are you looking for? What would be on a registration sheet for a particular cultivar? And, and how do you train your, your growing staff mm-hmm. to pay attention to those variables? So it, it starts from the beginning, um, all the way, you know, when we're creating stock plants and it follows that plant the entire way, all the way until the flower is trimmed. So we're collecting data points at each stage, uh, you know, key metrics that can inform us, you know, next time we run that plant, um, you know, we can get a little bit of a head start or we can skip that learning curve. Uh, because we're growing so much variety, it's hard to focus and kind of dial in every single one. So we have to collect a lot of data to successfully grow that variety and and maximize um, the potential of that plant. You know, with rooting, we might say, how long does it typically take for root emergence? You know, we'll ask, we'll ask for feedback from growers on the difficulty they have with that cultivar, or, or is it really easy to root? So that way, you know, the next time they go to grow it, they say, look, this, we're having trouble with this one. We should take an extra 10% cuttings just to cover potential losses. And then, you know, in, in veg might say, yeah, this one under LEDs or under this much light intensity does really well on top, no need to top it. And then this other one, no matter what we grow it under, it's so vegetative that we have to top it or else it's going to hit the lights every time we grow it. And we just keep going along each step of the way, collecting that data. A lot of it is automatically collected through our, our sensors. So you have you know, sensors our, that are monitoring these points, uh, not those points, but the, the key metrics like substrate water content, EC and temperature. And then sure. obviously our, our historical climate data. Um, we have DLI sensors, you know, a lot of, we try to automate as much as we can, but we are never going to get away from some of that manual collection. And you can definitely never use the data to replace you know, the grower's intuition or sort of the touch and feel for the plant. Why not? Because it's, you know, the data can deceive you sometimes. You know, you might see that water content is at, you know, 30 to 35% in the substrate and you say, okay, well, I'm getting close to watering, but I'm fine. But then if you go out there and you pick those bags up um, and they're too light, you don't you just say, well, you know, my data is telling me that they don't need water. No, you need to get the plants water. It might just be one sensor has gone rogue and it's throwing off your average or, um, so yeah, you're never going to replace a grower in this case, at least how intensive and how much variety we're growing. Um, Maybe once you get to scale and you're growing that single cultivar, you can add more automation and technology to take over that. But 
um, you know, for how we're set up, it's, it's a mixture of both. Do you also continue take, um, collecting metrics after cultivation? So are yes. you then looking at your chirping contents? Do you even go as far as, um, out into the world and consumer preferences. So maybe you have a 32% THC mm -hmm. uh, flower and a 26% THC flower and it goes out on the shelf and uh, to the retailers, to the dispensaries and consumers actually like the 26% one and not the 32%. Do you get that kind of feedback? And then do you actually go back to those registration forms and like yeah. write notes that like, people really like this one. This one did good, but like, 32% THC wasn't everything. So what, you know, I mean, what kind of feedback loop do you have? Yeah, we, we get some good feedback from sales. Um, but unfortunately, markets are mostly driven by potency. And it, it really saddens me because we're losing out on so many good plants by just focusing on, on a number. Um, you know, I wish people would pay more attention to terpenes or just flavor um, or the effects, how it makes them feel rather than just a number. Um, cause I've, I've smoked flour that's over 30% that I did not enjoy. I've smoked flour that's 14%. That's some of the best flour I've ever had. Yep. So I hope the market matures. It doesn't really look like that's going to happen soon. And at least from, from a potency standpoint, but yeah, we get plenty of feedback from sales to say, Hey, this one's doing well. People really enjoy this or, Hey, this one's not doing well. And so if something's not doing well, we can look at our, our plans and, you know, pull that cultivar out and plug a new one in. Um, so, so you wouldn't necessarily try to re-manipulate that same cultivar in a different way to get a different result. You're just like, that cultivar is not going to work. We got the best out of it we could. So we're going to switch it up. Right. Yeah. Because we're, our goal is always to bring the best expression out of the plant. So, so if people, so if people don't like the best expression of that plant, Sorry, yeah, plant, you got to go. grow it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> do you, do yeah. you find in Michigan where it is a more mature market that um, maybe some of the nuances of of the end product are more appreciated, or is it also still just higher potency still wins out in a in a more mature market? Yeah, potency still really drives sales. I mean, even in California, which is the most mature market in the country. Um, it's still pretty much potency driven. Mm -hmm. um, There's one that, that I'm really enjoying right now that I think is, I don't know, 22 or 24%. And, um, uh, but it tastes so good. I don't even care how it makes me feel. <laughs> I, just, <laughs> I just, just tastes good. Yeah, and I find that's how it should that, be. I know exactly, you know, it smells good and it tastes good and it's just so enjoyable in that way. Um, and I don't feel like I always get that, like it, a lot of, uh, I feel like a lot of flour, it has a nose, but then when yep. you smoke it, it's not right. Really the flavor weird. doesn't translate. Yeah, exactly. So when I find one that does, I'm like, I want to stick with this one Yeah, you know, or find another one like it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, growing up, we never got a test result on the bag we were buying or, <laughs> Um, in California, you know, I mean, no, no <laughs> you got a bag of weed and you're pretty stoked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was just all about the experience that we had exactly. on that, on that flower. And that's what would drive us to go back for more or find another source. Mm -hmm. So, 
Um, do all your growers look at the data that you're collecting or, do, or are you and maybe a few key members of your staff really focused on looking at the data? Like, and, and what I mean by data, mm -hmm. like the environmental data on say right. a daily basis or something. Oh, it's definitely everyone. And it's a very, very collaborative effort. You know, I think myself and, and the people on the national team, um, like we just hired Dan, Dan Gillespie, who was formerly with Jared Peters, and he's heading up this, this charge for the um, crop registration. And so we see ourselves as a support group um, that is that are supporting our cultivation managers. Um, and as a group, I think we learn just as much from our growers, if not you know, more than they learn from us, because they're the ones actually on the ground doing this and putting yeah. in that work and um, you know, making it happen. And, you know, we're kind of in the background tying things together and making sure they have everything they need to be successful. So it's, it's a very, very collaborative process. That's awesome. You guys used to grow under high pressure sodium, or maybe you still do in some of your facilities, but I have heard you say dimming quite a bit. So I'm assuming you're growing under LEDs now also. What, what has the yes. experience been like? Again, speaking of learning curve, was there a learning curve? going from HPS to LED? Do you like LEDs more or is it just different? It's, it's definitely different. We're right now out of our six, our six facilities, only one is fully HPS. Um, and that's going to be changing in the next few months. But I would say I definitely like LEDs more because our yields have gone up. The expression, the, the plant performance has gone up. But really what I think it comes down to is the amount of light that we can get to the plant. Where on HPS, even if your HPS room is designed like, quote unquote perfectly, you'll get 1,000 to 1,100 uh, PPFD to the canopy um, at, at most. With LEDs, you can push that number up higher without you know, worrying about heat stress or just pretty absurd cooling capacities with your HVAC. So, so if you could, if you could move the HPS lamps closer to the plants without burning them to get a higher PPFD, great, mm -hmm. but that's not really possible. But with LEDs, you can. Yeah. And the issue there would be uniformity because of how those, those lamps work, but there is no doubt that you can grow incredible cannabis under HPS. Some of the best weed I've seen have come from HPS rooms, but LEDs, it just, it's just takes a different approach. And luckily we were pretty prepared for that when we were making the switch and we didn't have too much of a, a learning curve, but even today we're still learning things. Like I was mentioning earlier, that constant improvement and finding new ways to grow the plant better and better, you know, we're still learning those things. And so one of the main differences is, is your room temperature. And I think a lot of people are hesitant to move up in temperature, but if you think about it, that those HPS lamps are putting off a lot more radiant heat and they're warming the plants up more. And so when you move to LEDs and you don't have that radiant heat and you're not adjusting your climate temperature, the plant metabolism is going to be much slower. But let's say you're like, okay, I'm going to move my temperature up. Well, if you move temperature up and you keep humidity set point at the same, your VPD is going to go up. So you, in order to keep the same VPD, you got to move the humidity up. And with more light, you should typically apply more CO2. And so that kind of covers the climate, but then if you adjust the climate, you dial that in now your root zone and how you approach that is going to need to change too. So we've seen plants under LEDs just typically need higher feeding rates. Um, more water. 
No, 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 I'm sorry. More fertilizer. More fertilizer yeah. in the same volume of water? That I am still bouncing back and forth on, on, on the water volumes. It's, I've seen variation depending on the facility, depending on the cultivar and growth habits. And, you know, I've, I've heard from different growers and they all have different opinions on that. You know, I've seen it, you know, a little bit of both, but feeding for sure, that's pretty consistent. Um, we typically need to feed at higher rates. Is it because there, there's more light? So there's more photosynthesis and, you know, is it because there's not as much radiant heat and you need to pack that nutrition into a, the same or lower volume of water? Um, you know, all I know is how these plants are responding. And when we manipulate electrical conductivity, whether it's in the feed or the substrate, we are seeing better results when we target slightly higher than what we were doing under HPS. And then plant maintenance is also a big one. Um, I think you know, starting with plant spacing, uh, typically I'll, I'll see more of a benefit under LEDs to reducing densities um, and growing larger plants. It, it especially helps with labor because you can let that plant fill in the canopy for you and capture all that light rather than you know, growing plants at higher densities and having, and they get crowded and you have to go in there and defoliate more or, or remove more branches and prune them just so they're but not. Why wouldn't crowded. it be the same strategy for, for plant densities and spacing for high pressure sodium? I mean, it's still about getting light down yeah. into the canopy, right? So wh why would LEDs be different than that? Is it, is it because you have a lower PPFD at the top of the plant to start with, with high pressure that, sodium? That's my best guess. Is, okay. is the um, the intensity at the top of the canopy and the penetration through the canopy. We can grow deeper canopies um, when we have more light. So, um, okay. yeah, and we just have seen growers adopting lower planting densities and really liking it. Um, yeah. You know, that means you don't need to take as many cuttings every week and you don't need to have as many stock plants to produce those cuttings. And there's a lot of benefits to it, but it's not something you should just switch overnight. You know, we've done that very slowly and carefully. Yeah. And, we've and known then, growers who are like, Oh man, you know, like the HVAC system is doing great. So, you know, we think we have some extra capacity, so we're going to throw in another row of benches mm -hmm. and they throw it in there and they're like, well, because of the crowding, the plants actually grew more small and, or more compact. And we didn't actually, not only did we not increase our, our production, we actually decreased it. So they ripped mm -hmm. that new bench out and went back to their original plan and they're much happier. So. Yeah. I'd, I'd rather you have less plants or less canopy and more control than more canopy and less control. Well, you also said, I mean, just in terms of like the efficiency of labor, not having to defoliate and prune or top and do mm -hmm. all these things as much, there's an efficiency built into that, that we shouldn't take for granted. Yeah. And every time you create a wound in that plant, you create an opportunity for disease to Good enter. Point. So we really try to limit that as well, as much as we can. They do need to be touched at key points in their cycle. Um but really trying to limit how much and how frequently we are touching them and creating wounds, open wounds, mm -hmm. um, whether it's from defoliating or pruning, um, you know, we try to mitigate the risk of disease. What does efficiency mean to you guys? 
I, I brought it up in terms of like labor and like touching the plant. Is mm-hmm. that how you guys think about efficiency? Do you think about it also in terms of energy and water and, and maybe fertilizer rates? Yeah, I think about it more as a strictly as a grower. Because um, what's really cool about holistic is we have specialists that are really good at what they do. And that's what they do for holistic. So we have people that you know, work to design our HVAC systems or uh, buildings and tracking energy efficiency and all of that. And I, I know enough to be dangerous, but I don't pretend like I'm an expert with that. So I look at efficiency strictly from a growing standpoint. And yeah, labor, of course, is a big one. You know, I'd rather be able to take those same people and put them on more sensitive tasks or more important tasks, like maybe quality control or, um, you know, taking cuttings or, um, yeah, I'd rather, if I had that extra labor, I would put put it towards quality control rather than saying, hey, you know what, we got to go back and defoliate that row again um, because we packed the densities in pretty tight. Um, you know, why, why do that when you can get pretty much the same results, if not better by spacing them out a little bit more, Mm -hmm. and then you can take those same people and put them on tasks that's going to improve the quality of your product. Yeah. And training them and steering them the way that you do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Do you consider the cannabis industry to be more competitive or collaborative? Oh, that's a tough one. I would say the industry is competitive. Uh, not a lot of people want to share what they're doing. They think it's all proprietary and I hate to break it to them, but it's probably not. Um, but the community is pretty collaborative. So other growers, yeah, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't be where I am today if I hadn't met someone like Ramsey or if I hadn't been able to work with all the growers that I'm able to work with today. And that's just internal, but I have friends, you know, in the industry that, you know, if I have something that I can't figure it out and I reach out to them, they're more than willing to, to help, especially with other people that are willing to share. So you can't go and ask people, hey, what do you think about this? And they give you that information and then they come back to you and say, hey, what do you think about this? You need to be willing to share and not saying you need to be a completely open book, but realize that we're growing plants and a lot of this stuff has been figured out already. It's, you're not creating some proprietary system. And so don't be afraid to share. It makes us all better. And receiving the information or downloading that information is one thing. Um, Executing is completely different. So even if I sat here for four hours and told you exactly how we do everything in the flower process, being able to take that information and run with it and actually execute it is completely different. Plus, I mean, because there's such a lack of scientific and academic research on this plant, the more that we can collaborate together and learn from each other about what works or even just starting with what doesn't work. So we don't keep going down the same paths of failure and we're starting, you know, at, at, a, at a place where we could be more successful. Uh, it feels like in cannabis, that's even more important to, to be sharing with each other because yep. we don't have an academic community yet. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I was growing vegetables, my first phone call when I had a problem would be to the extension office. And they would, if I I said, hey, I found this white fly, I would send them a picture. They would tell me the exact type of white fly it is, what my options for treatment are, if I want to use chemicals, if I want to use organic inputs, if I want to use beneficial insects, they would break down everything for me, even down to different cultivars. Because they, they knew the different cultivars that were typically grown in, in that region. 
Um, and it was like county specific. So it was very, very helpful. But with cannabis, yeah, one of the struggles for me was finding reliable information that I could reference as we were growing the plant. Um, and so if you Google search anything related, you're going to come up on forums, you're going to come up on different blog posts, and there's a ton of gold buried in there. If you know how to look for it, but it's especially for someone that doesn't have a good foundation of you know growing practices, it's going to be really hard for them to sift through that information and understand what's what's good and what's probably going to lead you down the wrong path. Because we have to remember that you know these forums where this industry came from, you know, kind of from the shadows, and those are the people that were risking their lives and their their freedom to figure this out and get this industry to where it is today. And so you. You definitely cannot ignore what they're saying. You have to listen. And um, that's the more I've done that, the better I've gotten at doing this. And what I've recognized is those legacy growers, they understand and they can differentiate quality much better than those coming from you know, other plant industries. And they know how to get to that quality better. Yeah, I've, I've appreciated my... That, you know, the growers that more legacy growers that, that work with us and teach me a lot about, you know, this plant and because they've just spent so much time with it. And that's, and a lot of times that's the only plant that they've grown from a horticultural standpoint. So they have a high level of intimacy with, with this plant. Yeah. It's interesting that you brought up a cooperative extension. I was at, I don't even remember. It was, it was a stakeholders meeting a few years ago with some university people And somebody made the comment that in the cannabis industry, the hydro stores are basically the cannabis's cooperative extension. Like that's where (laughs) people go to find experts or or advice, you know, and obviously these other forums and and stuff online. But I was like, oh, that's such an, an interesting way to think about the hydro store as cooperative extension, not not extended from universities, but still right. an outreach, right? Like yeah. um, community facing. Yep. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes sense to me. That's a really good analogy. It's just, you better have a good hydro store. Because if, <laughs> if, if, if you're trusting that information like you would an extension office, you, I hope you're getting the right information. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people in cannabis probably don't realize, I mean, even people in, in some traditional ag probably don't even realize the power of your uh, cooperative extension and your land grant universities yep. that are nearby that have all these fact sheets about time of year to grow, what mm-hmm. to grow, IPM. I mean, there is just so much information out there about our traditional agricultural and horticultural yeah. crops that just we don't have the benefit of for cannabis yet and it's all free because <laughs> we're paying for it with our taxes right oh, to that's go true into it's our not university. it's not totally okay free, not though. not totally free but right yeah, right you're not paying out of pocket i guess so right right um, um and it's gone through the rigors of research and you know a cooperative mm-hmm. extension i mean they're it's all about interfacing with the farmers and with the producers to understand what the need is, come back, do the research, and then go back out, right, and apply what they found in the real world and have these industry partnerships to, to do that research, not just in a laboratory environment, but out in the field to make sure that we can do it at scale, and that we're going to get the same beneficial results. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point to make. Because 
know, just like I said, you need to know how to sift through that information on forums and blog posts. You need to be able to do the same in, in a way with university information, because a lot of those trials or experiments were run with a monofactorial design. So they're changing one variable and seeing how that impacts the rest when yes. we know that that's not how this works. If you change temperature and you don't change humidity, you're also changing VPD. So, you know, the book Plant Empowerment talks about that. And I never really thought about it that way until I read that book. So again, I'm, I'm not paid by Plant Empowerment, I promise, but we reference that material a lot and yeah. it inspires us to how we grow the plants. So I'm glad you brought that up. We, we talk about that a lot in our, in our workshops and, and just educational, uh, you know, when we're, when I'm out giving presentations is that it's all interconnected. You change mm-hmm. one variable and you're, you're going to change other variables. Looking forward, how do you see the cannabis industry evolving and, and developing over the next five to 10 years? I definitely see more growers implementing those principles of plant empowerment or, you know, crop steering. They're, they're pretty similar, related to each other. When I first started crop steering, I didn't really, I didn't understand some of the parameters, like seeing how high we can get the substrate EC compared to what I previously knew um, was extremely shocking to me. And so that's a little, I've seen hesitation from growers to say, are you sure that's okay? Because, you know, in their mind, if I feed my plant that, I'm going to kill it. But the more we learn about these plants, the more light we can apply, like the dynamics change. So I see, you know, more light intensity, more, um, you know, principles of plant empowerment, crop steering, you know, as far as the rest goes, I'm, I'm pretty focused on just the growing, you know, I'm, I'm a consumer, I'm a customer. I hope that we get away from this idea of potency being what sells flour. I don't really see that happening very soon, like I said, but I hope that that happens. I also hope people stop getting arrested for this shit. <laughs> it's crazy. Like People still so, getting arrested? I mean, or different states. Yeah, it's, oh, it's still happening. Geez. So I hope that stops. Good goals. I agree. So, so Nick, what do plants crave? Electrolytes, right? <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Give this man a ribbon, a gold medal. Uh, Am I the first a person panda. to say that? Yes. Am I really the first? Oh my God. <laughs> and you know what else? I forgot to mention, you are our 10th episode, our 10th interview for this series. So, I mean, you're just, I mean, it's like you're at the grocery store and we're like the millionth customer and just like won the grand prize and all the confetti can fall on you right now. All right. Well, I'll, I'll wait for my prize in the mail. Okay, awesome. <laughs> um, do you agree with that? Do electric is that what plants crave? I mean, if we're talking about ions, I guess if you narrow it down to the you know, nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, carbon, oxygen, I guess yes. But uh, <laughs> what is plant? <laughs> I mean, no, that's a great, great question. That too loaded for me to answer. Okay. So I, just right. said well, elect- made- I just said electrolytes. I mean, you already won the prize. So, yeah. I mean, what else can you yeah. say? Where can you go yeah. from there? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So, uh, Nick, I end every episode with a few rapid fire questions. Just answer simply if you want to expand on it, please do. Um, but okay. You ready? Yep. All right. Number one, 
Are plants introverts or extroverts? Extroverts. Do you want to say like to why? Show off. They like to show off. That's why they make such pretty pictures on Instagram and mm -hmm. right everything. Yeah. Can cannabis create a more sustainable world? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just looking at hemp and how where hemp can replace certain materials. Yeah. I think that that alone give this answer a yes. God, there's so much potential with this plant. Yeah. Plant medicine, you know, instead of synthetic, there's a whole list of things that make us a more sustainable civilization. Mm -hmm. What is the best advice you've ever gotten about growing plants? Oh, I've gotten a lot of bad advice. Have you? Maybe those yeah. are more fun. Someone told me once when we were seeing intersex traits on some of our plants to put birth control in the water. Please, please no. <laughs> <laughs> what? For reals? Yeah. Yes, they were dead serious. That's one that stands out for bad advice. And honestly, the best advice has probably come from plant empowerment. I, I had to read those chapters four to six times over before I started to really grasp those concepts. And then when I did, I started thinking, I finished grad school. I was supposed to learn this kind of stuff, but I didn't understand any of this until I read this book. So it kind of made me feel dumb, but in a good way. Yeah. Like it's just, it's been such an inspiration for me and how I enjoy growing plants and seeing them, you know, express themselves better. Yeah. That book is, is filled with it. Also in my first day on my first farming job ever, within the first hour, I was working at an organic farm in Tallahassee. And I asked this farmers, same thing. Like what's the most valuable lesson you've learned in your career? And, and he said, limit your steps because, you know, if you take 10 steps that way, that's okay for one day. But if you add that up, if you're doing that every day, it accumulates very fast. So that's, I've always kept that in my mind when, you know, creating schedules or scheduling labor, because I don't want to do that to anyone else either. You know, if we can go and do something more efficiently at targeted times, limiting our steps, then it's going to pay off for everyone. That's really good advice. Last question. How do plants empower you? <laughs> they keep me sane. <laughs> like it sounds having, like it from your origin story. It definitely sounds like it. Yeah. If I'm having a bad day, I can just walk through a healthy garden and I can at least forget about why I'm having a bad day. If I'm having a good day and I walk through a healthy garden, it gets even better. But if that garden's not healthy, it can kind of go the opposite way. So my, my mood is highly tied to the, the health of our gardens. And, and do you have a garden at home? So I just moved into a new house and it's winter okay. and everything's dead outside. But um, <laughs> I did grow a big batch of peppers, chili peppers last year in my front yard. And I, I didn't have that much space, but yeah, I grew seven different varieties. And I love growing chilies, probably my favorite vegetable to grow. It's, it has a lot of genetic variety, like cannabis. Um, it does. I don't, I don't think nearly as much, but it's pretty close as far as, you know, comparing vegetables to cannabis. So yeah, I'm going to plant a bigger garden this year and some fruit trees and probably some microgreens. Nice. I was going to ask if you had grown any arugula microgreens yet. No, not yet. Um, I just got, I got to get set up for that, but I'm, I'm definitely planning on some of that this year. Nice. Well, I like peppers too. I like spicy food. Um, have you ever tried a chiltepine? It's like uh, a, so it's, it's like a bush. And then the, the chiltepine uh, peppers are like really small, like maybe a couple of centimeters. 
And I think I know the delicious. one you're talking about. The I grew a variety called charapita that is also really small. And if you Google ahi charapita, what will show up on Google is that it's the most expensive chili pepper in the world. I think it's because the peppers are so small that they're not commercially viable. So just no one really tries to grow them. But I love the flavor of them. It's more for you know my own personal head stash of peppers. But yeah, I grew that one. That's a, that's a great one. And then I, I love all ahi types. So okay. ahi, limon, ahi, amarillo. Those to me are the best flavored chilies. Nice. So do you like spicy food? No, not really. No. <laughs> I I can, I can handle a certain amount of spice, but I end up giving a lot of these peppers away to people that like them more than I do. I just really enjoy growing them and I don't need a lot because I can't handle a ton of spice. I'm trying to acclimate myself to higher spice levels, but, um, I end up growing a lot of sweet chili peppers. As a result. Okay. So like they still have a ton of flavor, but yeah. they're not adding the spice and trying to find the right pepper that has that balance. Cause I do like some spice, just not a lot. Fair. Well, Nick, thank you so much for this conversation. Uh, I learned a lot today. I know that my listeners are going to learn a lot from this episode and I love knowing how plants have empowered you and how you are empowering plants to bring out the best in themselves. So thank you so much for all the work that you're doing in this industry. Thanks for having me on. It's a great conversation. It's always easy to talk to you and, and have these kind of talks. So looking forward to possibly more in the future. Me too. All right. Thanks, Nick. All right. Thanks, Nadia. See ya. That was Dr. Nadia Saba speaking with Nick Denny, Director of Cultivation for Holistic Industries. Join us next week. We'll be speaking to Mark Lovesred. Mark is an associate professor and William Dawson scholar at McGill University. Thanks for listening.
That was Dr. Nadia Saba interviewing Mallory Quinn of MedMen for our series, What Plants Crave. Tune in next week for our next episode. Dr. Saba will be speaking to Nick Denny, Director of Cultivation for Holistic Industries. I'm Dennis Vadan, and this has been The Doctor is In with Dr. Nadia Saba. Thank you for listening.